Hello and welcome to Physical Attraction. This week we're going to jump back a little in the fusion narrative. You'll remember from last time that during the 1970s and with the invention of the laser, inertial confinement fusion had first started to be proposed. You'll remember from last time that during the 1970s and with the invention of the laser, inertial confinement fusion had first started to be proposed. The basic idea here was that using lasers to symmetrically compress a fusion capsule, you could, very briefly, attain sufficient densities and temperatures to release net energy from the fusion in the capsule. The principle is closer to a controlled H-bomb explosion than magnetic confinement fusion, which aims for a longer confinement of the plasma as it fuses. For this reason, it naturally sparked some military interest, and perhaps for that reason, the main centre of research was in the USA. However, the laser fusion scientists quickly discovered that unless the irradiation of the capsule was extremely symmetric, Raleigh-Taylor instabilities during the implosion, where tendrils of plasma flew out in all directions rather than being compressed, prevented net energy from being produced by these experiments. You can imagine it as being like trying to squeeze jelly with fingers that are slightly splayed apart. The jelly just flies through different parts of your fingers without being compressed to the density that you want it at. To attempt to remedy this problem, the solution was ever larger devices with ever more lasers, mirrors, lenses, and optical equipment. As with magnetic confinement fusion before it, laser fusion discovered new and exciting ways in which plasma could fail to do what it was supposed to, and found that the only possible solution was to build ever more expensive experiments to try to overcome the latest instability that they'd encountered. Some of the optimism surrounding laser fusion involved a somewhat mysterious classified set of computer code known as LASNEX. Versions of this code have been in use in many of the major laser fusion experiments since the 1960s. Like many computer models, it uses what we know of the equations and discretizes the problem. That is to say, it breaks down the deuterium pellet into a series of individual grid boxes, and then uses our best knowledge of how X-rays and elementary particles interact to try to predict what will happen when the experiment is run. Each grid box will have, for example, energy for the photons, energy for the electrons, densities of photons and electrons stored, and then it gradually advances through the time steps, integrating the physics step by step, propagating all of the particles along, that kind of thing, in a similar way to simulations that are used in aerodynamics for the fluid mechanics and performance of cars and aeroplanes. Physicists can then, ideally, use this model to experiment with how small changes to the design will work. What happens if the laser is a slightly different frequency, or if we illuminate here, or use this particular energy instead? Without going to the trouble of building thousands of different devices, running thousands of different experiments, and testing them all. The only problem was that Lasnex repeatedly predicted that the physicists were far closer to break-even than they actually were. When the Shiva laser fusion system was built in the 1970s, Lasnex had led scientists to believe that it would actually achieve break-even, but it was frustrated by these Raleigh-Taylor instabilities, and ended up producing less than 0.01% of the predicted energy. Chances are that, like all models, this information was incomplete. Sometimes the model can work well despite this, and Lasnex was pretty good at predicting the behaviour of low-energy plasmas, but it failed to anticipate the instabilities and problems associated with higher-energy plasmas, in the same way as Newtonian mechanics fails to predict the behaviour of particles at high energies. It's not that Newtonian mechanics is a bad model. You can go to the moon, and using its predictions, and understand plenty of phenomena in the world around us, just using Newton's laws. It just stops being applicable at a certain point as new phenomena become more and more important. Results from Shiva in the 1970s were incorporated into Lasnex and its modelling, and they motivated the construction of the Nova Fusion device. This laser, built at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory and completed in 1984, just a year after the jet tokamak, 
consisted of beam lines 91 metres long, folded in on themselves so that each was really 182 metres long in total. The light that's produced for a few nanoseconds, a pulse of trillions of watts, comparable to the entire world's energy consumption at any one time, focused on a small capsule of deuterium. This light comes from 10 separate beams, and is reflected to bathe the capsule from many different angles. The whole device cost $200 million, and its design and construction phase was torturous. In 1979, for example, John Knuckles, one of the key fusion scientists, realised that he'd made an error in his calculations, and that the device, which where they were already building at the time, wouldn't achieve break-even as intended. The modified design, however, was supposed to achieve break-even. And while it managed to produce plenty of fusion reactions, approximately 10 trillion neutrons, and hence fusion reactions between deuterium nuclei, every time the device was fired, it still wasn't enough. That energy release, even if it could all be usefully harnessed, which is unrealistic, was only around 5 joules. That's enough energy to lift a bag of sugar by 1 metre, which is obviously not quite the yield you'd hope for from your pellet of deuterium and your $200 million fusion device. And of course it wasn't break-even, because the laser consumed kilojoules of energy with each shot, most of which ended up being dissipated as parts of the laser burnt out on different bits of the equipment, so it was thousands of times away from achieving net energy release. Again, the problem was that they couldn't uniformly illuminate the capsule. Matching the energy provided by each of the beamlines to the degree of precision that was required was beyond Nova's capability. The result was turbulence in the plasma, hot spots and cold spots in the capsule, and the familiar by now Raleigh-Taylor instabilities that prevented the capsule from behaving like it did in the simulations. Descriptions of the scientific output of NOVA make this clear. This was another project that was intended to be the breakthrough, the moment that scientists could claim they'd cracked fusion and start genuine, concerted, international efforts towards building practical, commercial reactors. But it was just another project that became, instead, another step along the road, falling short of its goals. At this point, you may be wondering something about the laser fusion efforts. Namely, why are the scientists trying to work up from smaller and smaller devices to larger ones? We already know how to get inertial confinement fusion working. After all, incredibly symmetric compression of a fuel capsule to release huge amounts of energy, that's how a fusion hydrogen bomb works, and that was already releasing millions upon millions of joules of energy. So instead of scaling up these experiments with lasers, why not try to scale down hydrogen bombs? At least that way you're starting with something you know can produce fusion. If it turns out to be impractical to overcome the Raleigh-Taylor instabilities without causing a gigantic explosion, then presumably it's better to find that out by scaling down atomic bombs rather than building huge lasers that can't ever create commercial power but might be able to make smaller atomic bomb-style explosions. Of course, like most good ideas in science, someone else has already come up with it. In the late 1970s and 1980s, at the laboratories that pioneered nuclear research for so many years at Los Alamo and Livermore, two sets of experiments were done using underground nuclear tests. These were referred to as the Halite and Centurion experiments. And in these sets of experiments, atomic bombs were used to create the X-rays that compressed a fusion capsule of deuterium and tritium, much in the same way as an ordinary hydrogen bomb works. The problem with these experiments, as you might expect from underground nuclear tests that have obvious weapons applications, is that the results are highly classified. We know, for example, that one of the things that they did was probably to move the deuterium fuel capsule further from the source of the X-rays, as an attempt to determine how much energy, or how asymmetric the illumination, needed to be before the capsules were igniting and producing the energy as they'd hoped. Charles Safer quotes one Leo Mascheroni, who used to work at Los Alamo. 
He claims that the Halite Centurion devices receive millions of joules of energy without igniting, thousands of times more than was being produced by devices like Nova, and even then 80% of the capsules failed to ignite. According to Mascheroni, the Lasnex code was unable to predict why these failures were going on. However, it's worth pointing out that Mascheroni, who left Los Alamos a disgruntled scientist when they refused to work on his ideas for laser fusion, may not be the most unbiased observer. Shortly after Safer published the book, he was indicted by the US authorities. Apparently, he had met with a Venezuelan agent and told him that he could help Venezuela develop a nuclear bomb, based on his experiences and expertise from Los Alamos. At one point, he demanded $800,000 for a plan that laid out how to build a nuclear bomb in a 10-year program, and offered to fly to Venezuela to help this take place. It's pretty amazing to consider that he was well into his 70s when all of this supposedly went down. I mean, are you not looking for a quiet life at that point? Unfortunately, the Venezuelan agent was really an undercover FBI agent, and Mascheroni's plan to sell nuclear secrets was exposed. So these are hardly the actions of a really reliable witness or a guy without a grudge. So unless we're going to indulge in an elaborate conspiracy theory, where Mascheroni knew that the latest of fusion experiments in the US were a waste of money, and he was arrested by the FBI on trumped-up charges to silence him, then we really have to conclude that he's probably not the most trustworthy person. Although he was released from jail last year, and he's still living in the US, so Mascheroni, on the off chance that you're listening and you want to defend yourself on the podcast, please feel free to get in touch via the contact form on www.physicspodcast.com. Nevertheless, the whole Mascheroni affair does point something out to us. The secrecy surrounding the Halite and Centurion tests was indicative of one of the problems holding inertial confinement fusion back. Because of the weapons potential of what was being developed, all of the data remains secret to this day. No scientific peer review, except by those already employed to work on the project. When people come back from Halite Centurion and argue that the results showed they're on track towards laser fusion, and that the next experiment will do it, there's very little that we can do to dispute that without access to the data. The LASNEX code is all based on these classified experimental results, so it's very difficult to know if it's been written correctly. Yet science done in this way is slower. Fewer people are involved. Mistakes and errors in thinking can persist for longer. So some scepticism is surely justified here. Before we move on from NOVA and into the world of National Ignition Facility, which I like to view as being the inertial confinement fusion equivalent of ETA for Tokamax, one last huge multi-billion dollar and multi-decade attempt to really get this thing working. There's a rather interesting coda to how NOVA was used. Starting in the late 1980s, a new method of creating very short but very high power laser pulses was developed, known as chirped pulse amplification. Of course we've talked about this before as the creators of it recently won the Nobel Prize for their efforts. Starting in 1992, Lawrence Livermore's staff modified one of Nova's existing arms to build an experimental chirped pulse amplification laser that produced up to 1.25 petawatts of power. Known simply as petawatt, it was operated right up until 1999 when Nova was dismantled to make way for NIF. The basic amplification system used in Nova and other high-power lasers of its era was limited in terms of power density and pulse length. One problem was that the amplifier glass responded over a period of time, not instantaneously, so very short pulses would not be strongly amplified. Another problem was that the high power densities led to the same sorts of self-focusing problems, the kind that had caused versions of the device to burn through parts of its lenses and mirrors as we discussed in previous episodes. But these devices were at such a magnitude that even measures like spatial filtering, where parts of the laser, in particular hot spots and cold spots, are blocked off by passing the laser through pinholes, were not enough. In fact, 
the power densities were high enough to cause little self-focused laser filaments to form in air. So even in the air between parts of the devices, you would start getting these filaments that would reinforce themselves and basically produce hot spots and cold spots that might destroy your device. Chirped pulse amplification avoids both of these problems by spreading out the laser pulse in time. So how they do this is actually by reflecting a relatively multi-chromatic, as opposed to most lasers, pulse. So this is a pulse with lots of different frequencies of light in it. They reflect it off a series of two diffraction gratings, and that splits them spatially into the different frequencies. Essentially the same thing that a simple prism does with visible light, or the back of your CD case will, when you see it uh, spread out the ordinary light into the rainbow. These individual frequencies have to travel different distances when they're reflected back to the beamline because they've been essentially split apart, following different paths. This results in the pulse being stretched out in time, as different parts of the pulse arrive at different times. The longer pulse is fed into the amplifiers as normal, and now they have time to respond and amplify the signal. After amplification, the beams are sent into a second pair of gratings in reverse, which recombine them into a single short pulse with high power. These ultra-short, extremely powerful laser pulses have made a new type of laser fusion called fast ignition conceivable, and this concept was tested quite extensively at NOVA. The idea behind fast ignition is to add yet another pulse to the original ignition. So what you do is you use your first pulse to compress the capsule of fuel, and then, when it's at maximum compression, you blast it with an extremely short burst of energy from a chirped amplified pulse. So you can imagine this as the extra spark that ignites the fusion device when the plasma is already hot and dense by ensuring that there's just so much more available energy around to ignite a fusion reaction that can produce net energy. Usually how they do this is they have a hollow core in the very centre of the fusion capsule. That's where you blast your quick ultra-hot ignition laser. And so you have something a bit like a thermonuclear bomb where the material is being compressed and given energy from both sides. According to the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory quote, an advantage of the fast ignition approach is that the density and pressure requirements are less than in central hotspot ignition, so in principle fast ignition will allow some relaxation of the need to maintain precise spherical symmetry of the imploding fuel capsule. In addition, fast ignition uses a much smaller mass ignition region, resulting in reduced energy input, yet provides an improved energy gain estimated to be as much as a factor of 10 to 20 over the central hotspot approach. With the reduced input laser, you can get more fusion energy gain, as much as 300 times energy input, and also the capsule doesn't need to be as symmetric, so the fast ignition approach has lots of things to recommend it. It could provide an easier development pathway towards an eventual fusion energy power plant. Nowadays, many of the people who are still working on inertial confinement fusion, and there are plenty, view fast ignition as one of the best routes towards fusion. But like rivals to the tokamak in magnetic confinement fusion, the counter-argument against getting too excited about them is that the science is less mature. In fusion, we've seen it plenty of times by now, there's often reason not to get too excited about a brand new idea. It often means that you haven't encountered whatever big, horrible plasma instability makes your idea impractical, and hence you'll need several generations of device to get to comparable performance with the big established guns, which their proponents would argue, well, we should better spend that money on the next ETA or the next NIF, some technology with a proven track record where the next device really might be the one that takes us over the line. Indeed, more recently, fast ignition itself has fallen out of favour and has been replaced by ideas like fast shock fusion that aim to overcome some of the challenges found in the theory and early experimentation with fast ignition. However, some view this as a turning point where NOVA was dismantled and the fast ignition concept was replaced by a bigger version of the previous laser in NIF. 
Maybe that was indeed a sad day for the practicality of laser fusion. But in the event, the decision was taken to build NIF, a much bigger, more conventional laser fusion experiment that would attempt to solve the problems of previous experiments. But it's worth mentioning the second life of the NOVA experiment to point out that there are many other routes worth exploring to inertial confinement fusion that may yet come good, and also because our 2018 Nobel Prize special episode talked about the development of chirp pulse amplification, developed by Donna Strickland and Gerard Moreau, who won in part the 2018 Nobel Prize in Physics for the work they'd done decades before, that has now become standard use in so much laser research. So on the off chance that this fast ignition does turn out to be the one true path to commercially viable fusion, in a nice way, the winner of the Nobel Prize last year would have been instrumental in making that happen. Next time then we'll talk about the story of NIF, the biggest inertial confinement fusion experiment that humans have yet performed. It will come as no surprise to you to hear that yes, it ran billions of dollars over budget, and yes, it was severely delayed in its completion. But we must soldier bravely on through the next generation of physicists to run at this particular wall, to tell the tale of how it started, and precisely what went wrong. Telling the story of NIF, which is still running today, albeit as a slightly different beast to its initial design, will take us right up to the present and the future. I'll see you there. Thanks for listening to this episode of Physical Attraction. Remember, there's plenty of ways you can get in touch with the show and help us if you like what we do here. You can get in touch at www.physicspodcast.com, via the Twitter at PhysicsPod, via the Facebook page Physical Attraction. On the website you'll find contact forms, a link to our PayPal for donations, and a link to our Patreon account at patreon.com slash physicalattraction. Signing in there will get you access to some of the bonus episodes that we've released over the years, and hopefully more to come in the future. But of course, if you don't want to support us financially, the best thing you can do is tell as many people about the show as possible. Every little helps. Until next time then, take care.